uh, Jesus having power. So today, we're, uh, we've, and we've been looking at nuances of that, that Jesus has the power uh, to heal, he has the power to create, he has the power over life, he has the power over nature. And today what we're going to look at is, is pretty solemn, to be frank. It's uh, Jesus having the power to judge. So I've had a lot of angst preparing this, and, and uh, so it's a, it's a little bit different turn than what we typically talk about. Uh, but I, what I, my goal today is to present the truth of these passages to you, and we'll just let them, let them rest where they are. So I was thinking about, kind of leading up to this, I was thinking about things we're accountable to. So I don't know if you have that feeling of, uh, ever had that feeling of being caught, right? Caught red-handed. Likely you've done something to be caught red-handed at some point. It may have been very serious. It may have not been. Uh, I daily get caught, so I, I've turned part of my life over to a robot that tells me how much food I can eat. So I have this app on my phone, and and you know about 10 o'clock in the morning, it'll say, you didn't tell me how much breakfast you had yet, and I'll get a little alert, and it's like, oh, I'm accountable to this app, and I'll do it. And it gets real excited when I stay in the calories. It gets a little bit abusive when I'm not. Um, Angie has an app on her phone, on her watch, that, ta- that tracks how much she stands up. And so she loves this. So, so I don't know what it's tracking, but she's a nurse, so she's busy eight or ten hours a day walking around. But it, for some reason, thinks she doesn't stand up enough. So she'll get these really, really mean messages <laughs> about eight o'clock that, at night that'll say, maybe you ought to stand up now. So it, I, it's, it's tough. I, one, of the, one of the most clear feelings of being caught red-handed I, I get, and this, is, this has been a couple of times in life, is when you're driving down the road, and, and I'm, not a, I'm not a big speeder, but I can, I can lose track of things at times. And, and that feeling of, of when you're just going down and, you know, the song's on the radio and there's not a care in the world, and then all of a sudden the reality comes and you see that guy with the radar pointed right at you. And it's just like this uh, sinking, stuck feeling. So then you're like this amazing driver for about at least two or three minutes, looking in your rearview mirror, just wondering, is, is accountability about to come? And a couple of times in life it has, and it's, it's no fun. It's no fun. We're always accountable to somebody. I mean, in a, in a day where we talk about you know, it's not right to judge each other, and judging seems to be taboo. Speaking in other people's lives seems to be something that we, uh, our culture says we don't have a lot of right to do. Um, I don't know if you've read Facebook lately, but there seems to be a lot of it that goes on, speaking in other people's lives. But we're always, we're always accountable to somebody. So if you're a student, you have a teacher, and that teacher's grading, and there's a day of accounting. If you, if you work, you have a boss. If you... Uh, go buy a car. Oftentimes you have a car payment, and if you don't make the car payment, the bank's going to be calling you up. Or if you go buy a house, the bank's going to be calling you up and say, did you make your payment? So, so there's always these things in our, in our life where we're accountable to somebody. What I want to do today is introduce you to the supreme judge, the, the one who is worth being accountable to. And it's a little bit of a tough passage. I want to start with a story before our passage. I want to introduce you to the judge whose judgment actually matters today. So this starts in the story that we're going to look at starts in at the beginning of chapter five. We won't read that whole story, 
We're going to pick up in just a moment in verse 16. Uh, but this is what happens in John chapter 5 in the very beginning. There's this, there's this pool. I don't know if it's a hot spring or a mineral spring or something, but in John, beginning of John chapter 5, Jesus is walking around, and in this particular place that he's at, there's this mineral spring or hot spring, and, and there's a lot of people that have uh, disability issues that gather around this pool, and I, I don't know how to interpret this. John doesn't tell us this. It said it in, a different, in one of the other accounts of the story. But the thought was that at times an angel would come and stir the waters up. And, and when they saw the waters stirred, the idea was the quickest person into the pool could get healed. And so if you had a disability issue, an issue with an extremity, a, a neuropathy or paralysis, you would, you would sort of, as much as you had time, you would hang out around this pool waiting, hoping for healing, hoping that the waters would be stirred and you could jump in. So, so Jesus goes to this pool, and what the beginning of John chapter 5 is about is he goes to this pool, and he starts talking to this guy who's laying there on a mat, disabled. Jesus said, I mean, it's kind of a silly question. He says, uh, are you hoping to be healed? And the guy says, well, duh. You know, I'm not, I'm not here for the scenery. You know, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm looking for healing. That's why I'm here. And so Jesus doesn't go stir the water up. Jesus says to this guy, you're healed, take up your bed. He's laying there on the bed. Take up your bed and go on your way. And the guy stands up, he's healed, and he packs up his mat, his bed, starts carrying it off, and off he goes. And, and that's, that's this little vignette of Jesus having power over healing. But, but this story causes this crazy amount of stir. And that's what brings us into the passage that we're about to look at. And what the stir is, when Jesus does this, when he heals this guy and he takes him to take up his bed and go walk, you know, get out of here, what the particular day of the week this is, is, is it's the Sabbath day. Way back in the Ten Commandments, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, there was a commandment that says, uh, keep the Sabbath holy, the, the seventh day of the week. It's a day of rest. Keep it holy. And so all these religious leaders, as, as time goes through the Old Testament, and now we get to these Pharisees in the New Testament, the religious leaders of the day, they're bringing interpretation of that law about what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy. And so they had developed, out of that one rule, they had developed hundreds and hundreds of rules to help people understand what it means to keep a day holy. And so what happens is when they see this guy on the Sabbath day, carrying his bed around because Jesus says, take up your mat and walk. They go to this guy and they get in his face and they say, you're breaking the Sabbath. And this guy's defense says, hey, a miscellaneous guy that I just met when I was laying by the pool, he's the one who told me to do it. Now, I think the Pharisees probably knew that was Jesus, but, but the guy didn't. The guy didn't actually, as the passage goes, they don't, he doesn't really know who it is. If you read through the passage in the beginning of John chapter 5, he doesn't know who told him that. He just knows it's the guy who healed him. And, and the guy who healed me told me to take up my bed and walk. So I picked up my bed and walked. And the Pharisees say, you're breaking the Sabbath, and we want to know who's telling you that. And the time goes on as you read the story. The, it's, it's kind of strange. The guy can't, doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know... Uh, doesn't know how to point the finger at Jesus. And so now the guys at the temple, the next vignette of the story is the guys at the temple, and Jesus kind of sneaks up on him in the passage and taps him on the shoulder and says, how's it going? 
And he says, oh, you're the guy who healed me. Hey, everybody, you're worried about the Sabbath? This is the guy. So Jesus is, I, I read the passage like Jesus really wants to kind of get in trouble here, right? He's, he comes back to the scene. And so, so then they get in this conversation, these Pharisees who, who believe that Jesus is instructing this guy to break the Sabbath, to break an Old Testament law. It opens up this discourse, this, this teaching from Jesus about who he is in relation to the Father and who he is as a judge for all eternity. And that's what introduces our passage today. And so I'd call that the story. If you're taking notes, it's going to be a little bit messy, but I would call that the story. Now we're going to look at the scriptural truth. And we'll start in verse 16. And this is where it goes. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son, talking about himself, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does, uh, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he, he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to, to, from he's passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All right, scriptural truths. I want to speak to two big scriptural truths we see in this text. One is this. It's this father-son relationship. Jesus begins to talk about this relationship he has with the father and what it's like. And then the second one is, it's, it's what Jesus says about being a judge. And what does the passage say about judgment? So we'll deal with that secondly. First, the father and son relationship. This is what Jesus says. So this is his answer to the Sabbath question. When he talks about the Sabbath, this is the accusation they're making, right? You're breaking the Sabbath, Jesus. You're telling people to break the Sabbath. Jesus says, look at how much work my father's doing. I've got to be doing the same thing. So the Sabbath is all about work, right? The Sabbath is about rest and work. And what Jesus, Jesus' defense of working on the Sabbath is, I've got to do what my father's doing. Talking about his father in heaven, of course, right? God in heaven, my father, Jesus says, is always working. He's working even till now. And I've got to be about my father's business. I've got to be working. The work he's doing is healing people. What's interesting, my guess is the only categories the Pharisees had for healing were things like applying balms and medicines and herbs and things like that. My guess is they didn't have a category for somebody that just walks up and tells somebody to walk. But nonetheless, they saw that as work. Jesus is doing this work. He's, 
he, he's exerting his infinite power by healing somebody. And they don't like it. Jesus' defense is, my father is working and I must work. So I work. Secondly, he says, my father gives life. So I'm giving life. We've talked about this uh, several weeks ago, this idea that core to who Jesus is, core to his power, is to bring life to people. Now, I want you to hang on to this because when we move to this really somber and difficult section about Jesus being judge, hang on to this because this is core to Jesus being judge that he desires to bring life to people, not death. Jesus says, my father gives life and I've got to be doing the same thing. I'm bringing life to people. And then finally, he says, my father entrusts me with judgment. My father entrusts me with the judgment of this world and so I'm going to judge people. That's the role that I play. But why does he do that? And I want you to hang on to this truth as well. Why do we do this? Why, why am I the judge? In verse 23, Jesus says this. If I can find it. Why am I the judge? That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The reason Jesus is a judge, the reason God's entrusted it that God the Father is entrusted to God the Son to be the judge, is not vindictiveness. It's to bring people to a place that they're honoring Him, right? He's, he's moving them. He's moving them through bringing them life so that they honor Him with their own lives. Now, there's a lot of scriptures that speak to Jesus being judged. I want to just run through some of these. We won't look them up. I'm just going to kind of zip through them because, because what I want you to, the case that I want to build for you is is that when Jesus speaks about being a judge, this isn't a random section of, of John, right? This isn't John's theology about Jesus. This is New Testament theology about Jesus. And I know we don't talk about Jesus being judged very much at all, and it makes us maybe a little squeamish to think about God judging people at all. Maybe it makes us squeamish about God judging us. One of the things I'd say about this whole sermon, I, I started, should have started out with this. There's some sermons to me, and this is, this is one, where when I'm listening to it, my, the most easy application is to think about other people, right? So when you're hearing me, when, when you're hearing these texts and we're going through it, I, I just want to, I want to help you. If you go, wow, I wish so-and-so was here because they really need to hear this. You're not listening very well, right? Right? Or you're ready to get on Facebook because you want that friend and, you know, boy, wait till you hear what the pastor said today. You got to hear this. No. We're, you're the ones here, right? I, I have this solid belief. God brought you here today. You're hearing this text. So, so start with what, what is this text? What is God saying to me in this moment? And if your mind's wandering to somebody else, guard your mind, all right? But, but there's a New Testament theology of Jesus being judged. Listen to these passages. I'm just going to run through them. Acts 10.42, the, the New Testament church, this was part of the core of what they taught. And God ordered us, or he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Acts 17.31, Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. 
John 12, if anyone hears my sayings, this is Jesus talking, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to the Lord judge the world, but I, to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. So Jesus is talking about his own word will judge him. Uh, Revelation 19.11. This is at the end of the book. And I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Acts 17.30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men, uh, to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So you hear a couple of things in those verses. There's this day coming. So, so Jesus is this judge, but there's this day coming in which it will be a day of judgment. Now, we've not gotten to that day yet. As, as these people wrote in the past about that day coming, that day still hasn't occurred. It's still a day for us that's in the future. But there's a day coming. It will be a literal day where people will stand before the Lord and give an account. They'll stand before the Lord Jesus. And as much as our songs sing about Jesus being our best friend or our, uh, romantically as our boyfriend and how beautiful he is and all these things, it's, it's wrapped up in the midst of Jesus being a judge as well. So I'm not saying we throw out those things. I'm saying don't lose the fact that Jesus is those things and a judge. He's all of these things. So we hear about Jesus in this father-son relationship. And the way, the way he's talking about Jesus doing the work that his father's doing and Jesus bringing the life that his father brings and Jesus uh, being judged that his father has delegated to him, the Pharisees are hearing him right. They're hearing him say, I am God's son. I am God. I'm, I, th this understanding that, that he is the, the second person of the Trinity. He is God himself in the flesh. And the Pharisees are hearing him rightly make that claim, and they're mad about it. And then he moves to talk about judgment. So let's talk about what he says about judgment. What does the passage say about judgment? There's a judgment coming at the end of time. It's what the passage would say. And it's a judgment of the living and the dead when everyone will stand before the Lord and they'll give an account. And the judgment oftentimes, most often speaks not in terms of relationship like we talk about, but it speaks in terms of what did you do? Was it good or bad? Now, I want to be careful here because one thing you can do is you can stop listening now and you can say, I've got to reform my life and I've got to do good things and not bad things so that I can get through the judgment. But we've got to take the Bible as a whole. And even in this passage, one of the things we find is the, the way to escape the judgment is not by your goodness, it's by relationship with Jesus and mercy. But there's a judgment coming at the end of time. And those who are alive will be judged at that time. And the dead, it says, will, will, will rise up. There'll be resurrection for everyone. God will bring life for everyone. And he brings them to life so that they can stand before Jesus, the Son, and be judged. And at that judgment, there'll be some that exit that judgment to condemnation, hell, and there'll be some that exit that judgment to life, heaven, abiding with God. 
That, that is the basics of this passage. I want to bring about some, some implications for you to, to take away with today. Now, to keep with the S, I, I did, I, in my notes, I put serious implications. I can tell by your faces this is a serious sermon. You guys are getting this serious. I, I remember a time, there's times in life where we move from like everything's fun and games to the seriousness of things, right? I, the, you just have those moments in life. I remember a, a time, uh, I'm by no means like uh, amazing, and I've done this a lot, but I've been a couple of times on a snowmobile. Who's been on a snowmobile? It's like crazy fun, crazy, crazy fun. So I go out with my friend Doug, uh, who is a snowmobile master. He's got several snowmobiles and works on them himself. And he's like, let's go. So he, he, both times I've been with Doug. And we get up, I go up in Greenhorn, and we're, it's spring. And so, you know, when you're on the trail, it's packed snow, and you're just zipping along. So it's roads and hiking trails that have been transformed into snowmobile trails. And we get up, and we, we're at Ophir Creek Pass, and I think we've been about 12 miles up the mountain. So we're kind of in the middle of nowhere for, uh, for a March day. And it's a little cold, pretty, pretty cold, and snowing. And we're zooming along, and it's all fun and games. And I'm passing him, and he's passing me, and I'm going off the banks and doing little, you know, amazing, amazing tricks I was doing. Uh, you guys. <laughs> so we get to the spot, and, and Doug says, I think this is a shortcut. And there's like a little, we can't see if it's a trail marking. I think this is a shortcut to get to this other place he wants to take me. And we get, we get about 1,000 yards down, maybe a quarter mile down the road, uh, what seems to be a trail, and we slow down, and we realize we're not on a trail. And the snowmobiles sink, and we're in like six feet of snow, and the snowmobiles are now six feet under the snow. So that doesn't worry me at all, because I'm oblivious, right? That didn't bother me at all. I, I'm like, well, this is interesting. I've not done this before. And we get off, and so now there's, you now Doug's in good shape, I'm not. And we're traipsing around in like six feet of snow, hauling, he's, Doug's like, I don't think this is the trail. Like, well, I don't think so either because no, nobody's been here. And so, you know, we're at 10,000 feet elevation, you know, inching these snowmobiles so that we're turning them around so that we can get back out. And, and we probably work about an hour and a half to get them turned around. And, and, and each of us are getting in front of the snowmobile, starting to pack the snow to get a ramp to get back up on top of the snow where it's not broken yet and go. And we do this, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half. Again, I'm not worried. It doesn't bother me at all. This is just snowmobiling to me. Now, Doug's a guy that never, like, he never worries about anything. It just, things don't bother Doug. And I look at Doug, Doug's starting to talk about camping out overnight. I'm like, okay, now I'm getting a little worried. I'm getting a little worried. <laughs> and we, we, I'm like, well, let's try a little bit more before we pick that answer. Because... <laughs> got like two matches and nothing. I mean, there's, there's nothing. And, and, and what I realized in that moment, this, this is what I want to bring to you, right? There's these moments that life is sort of all fun and games, and then you take that, that turn, and it's like, okay, this has now gotten serious, right? You now we got the snowmobiles out, and, and Doug was way more relieved than I was, which just shows my own ignorance. Doug was like super, super jazzed that we got those things out. I thought we just walked the 10 miles back, but he didn't seem that was, think that was a good idea. But, but this, is, this is where we're at in the story here. When we talk about Jesus being judged, we're, we're now making this move, and it's like fun and games is done. We're, this, is, this is utterly serious. 
All right. Let me give you a couple of implications. And these are super simple. One is this. What happens now matters. There's things about our culture, things about maybe the family you grew up in, maybe it's your life philosophy, but but there's these root things that we deal with in American culture. And one of the things, particularly when you're when you're young, is sort of like life doesn't matter, you do whatever you want to do. I'm telling you, that goes against the biblical truth. The things that you do, the choices you make, how you spend your time, and this is not true for old, just for young people, this is true for old people as well. And, and I, I live with this burden upon myself. What I do moment by moment matters. It, it matters for me, and it matters for the people that I come in contact with. Uh, it matters for my own testimony, and it matters for the testimony that I'm giving to others. How you spend your time, the choices you make, what you do during the day matters. You're not irrelevant. I mean, this is, this is the backside of that, right? It's, sometimes we just think we're so irrelevant, nothing we do matters. You may have been taught that. You may have been yelled at and told that. It's not true. In the kingdom of God, every soul and how you operate and how you live and who you relate to, mainly Jesus, it matters. Your life is not a series of uh, meaningless choices. It matters what you do. Secondly is this. The payment for your sins occurred at the cross. So that this, is, this is the vision of the judge to me. So, so when I, I said earlier, it's not your good works that are going to bring you life at that, at that judgment day. It's a relationship with Christ. This is the picture of the judge that, that, present, that the Bible presents to us. And some of you have been before a judge and, and faced penalty for your actions in that way, and I've not ever done that. But you, we all know the courtroom model, right? The courtroom model is you're there and you're, you're uh, the defendant and you're making your case and the judge is there and the judge at the end of the day pronounces guilty, right? This is the picture of, of this passage is Jesus on the throne and we come before him and he looks at our works and he says, you're guilty. You're guilty and, and you deserve death and you deserve hell and there's no way out. And we face that, we face that condemnation. But the scriptural picture is the judge then takes his robe off and he goes and he stands beside you and he says, I'm taking your death and your condemnation. That's the biblical picture. The biblical picture, and this is why I said we, we hold all these things together in tension of who Jesus is, is he's the judge bringing condemnation over sin, over our sin, over my sin. But then he's our advocate who takes the very penalty of our sins when he goes to the cross, the death that you deserve, he takes upon himself. Now, my own sense this week is, as I've been studying about judgment and, and what judgment day will be like, my own sense of that judgment day will almost be as, as, as a weeping Savior upon that throne because, because this is the sadness, right? Every person that comes before him, he's already paid for all their sins if they only were in right relationship with him, right? Every person that, that he resurrects from the dead and he brings to account, every person he's taken all of those sins upon himself, but only those who have become in the right relationship with him find life. And on that day, it will be person after person, and I hope it's not you, but it will be person after person 
who are condemned before the Lord that day. They face the condemnation of their sins. And Jesus will be saying, if only you had repented. If only you had turned to me. I had paid everything. I had paid it all. I had made the way for you for life, but you rejected me, the ultimate sin. Rejecting him. Payment for all of your sins occurs on the cross. Thirdly is this, obedience. Obedience occurs in relationship. Look back at verse 24 in chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come in the judgment, but has passed from death to life. God is looking now for people who hear him and obey him. That, that is... That is the nugget of what it means to come into relationship with Jesus. It's not coming into relationship and finding forgiveness for your sins and then you go out the door and you go, perfect, now I can go do whatever I want. God now is looking for people who come into relationship with His Son. They hear Him. They believe. He's the one who's been sent to save me of my sins. And I'm not working for my own salvation, but I'm understanding now that this Savior, the one who saves me from my sins, this righteous judge, the one who condemns my sins, has a way of life for me. And I'm buying in and I'm living that way by faith. Obedience occurs in relationship. And God's always, for Christians, he's always bringing us back to what holiness looks like. Holiness in the midst of our own appetite for greed uh, and, and money. Our holiness in our desire to deceive others and embrace lies. Holiness in the midst of our arrogance. Holiness in the midst of our ungodly sexual habits and practices. Holiness in the midst of any sin that stands against him. And for the Christian, for those of you, and I know this is most of you gathered here today, most of you gathered here today say, I've, I've accepted Jesus and I'm, I'm clinging to his mercy and I know there's no other way for my salvation but him. It's not just that we've escaped judgment, but it, we've tra- we have a transformed life that we're now living. Just as Raina talked about nightly, we're coming and we're repenting before the Lord and we're, we're, we're letting that, that righteous judge upon the throne say to us, here's what your day was like and here's what measured up to holiness and here's what's not. And it's not a spirit of condemnation. It's in a spirit of righteous living and knowing who he is and testifying to what that's like. Obedience occurs within the relationship with Christ. And then finally is this, in terms of serious application, the time for repentance is now. If you need a, a text to go read and, and study a little bit this week, you might take a look at Hebrews 3 and 4. Hebrews 3 and 4 is about those that have professed Christ and they're wrestling with whether to keep obeying Him or not, keep believing Him or not. And the refrain of Hebrews 3 and 4 is, today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Because there's serious implications. So whether you're a Christian today or whether you've come in here and you're not sure if you know Jesus, the application is the same. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. This is what happens when somebody puts their finger on ourself and, oh, who are you to do that to me? We harden our hearts. Don't let that be so when Jesus, I don't know what, what, what Jesus is putting his finger on right now for you. He's invasive. Okay, I'll just tell you, I've been following the Lord a long time. He's invasive to your privacy, right? Sometimes we want to have a house and 
you know, a, a, a spiritual house, a mental house, and we say, okay, Lord, come in. You've got free reign. I want you to go, go in any room you want to. And he works his way back in the back, in the back, in the back, and he finds that door locked, and he goes, what, what's in here? Oh, no, Jesus, you've got the whole house. <laughs> you don't need to go in there, <laughs> right? That, that's my little place, right? We, we keep our sin in a little secret place, and we hide it away. The Lord says, am I going to be master of this house or not? Am I going to be master of this house or not? And if the Lord's kind enough to put his finger on a sin in your life and he's your Lord, the response is, all right, Lord, here's the key. Come in and clean that room up for me because I can't do it. Those sins have been plaguing me for years and I can't do it. Come in, Lord, because my house is yours. All the doors are open. And what Hebrews 3 and 4 would say is today is the day to repent, to turn around. Again, not trying to achieve salvation by our own good works, but living out the expression of what it means to have faith and obedience in Christ. The worship team is going to come back and lead us in some song. Uh, if you want to, this is the time for you to seek the Lord. This is why we build this time into our gathering. You may need to repent of something. You may need to go to a brother or sister and say, I've been holding uh, anger against you or a, a sin against you. And I want you, I want to confess that and, and, and get right with you because it's not right for me to do that. You may, you may have a secret sin and you want to come pour out your heart to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. I want to repent of that. I want to go the other way. Give me strength. It may be something you have to repent of every day. You're turning. You're always turning. But start today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Repent.